Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. In fact, I, I'd less how I'd like to begin is by just thanking the society. It's been very hospitable. It's been a really wonderful experience uh, coming here. I hope to um, share with you uh, some sort of you know ongoing thinking that I'm doing. Nothing, nothing very formal at all. Um, uh, so, um, and you know, maybe in the seminar too, especially in the seminar. In fact, we could uh, think about these questions more. Maybe questions that I don't have answers to. Um, what is poetry? When I ask this question of my undergraduate students, I usually try to help begin drawing that ambiguous line between poetry and prose. As we try to sort out the differences and we think about the myriad forms of contemporary poetry, including prose poetry, the usefulness of such categories can come into question. But asking it here, in a discussion concerning the 13th century Sufi master Ibn al-Arabi, uh, the problem is not one of category. A metered language, usually in set numbers of feet, stood out from other compositional forms, making it rather easy for the lexicographer Ibn Manzur, writing in the late 13th century, to describe a shi'r poetry as that utterance which is arranged, marked in its high distinction by the predominance of meter and rhyme. The question then becomes one of essence. What really is poetry? Why does it arouse not only pleasure, uh, but in its most celebrated instances, a sense of the sublime? Why do lovers favor it as a mode of remembrance? And it's the second question that I'm particularly concerned with today. In Ibn Arabi's discussions of the topic, it is clear that poetry is a venue for a summative, perceptive sort of knowledge lacking detail, as opposed to a venue for clarity, specifics, uh, or lucid expression. That is, it is a place of al-ijmal, or synoptic expression, and not a tafsil, or expositional expression. According to Ibn al-Arabi, this is why the Prophet Muhammad, who was sent to clarify and expound, was not made a poet, as is announced in the Qur'an. That's uh, verse 69 of chapter 36. In this regard, poetry, ashir, is related to the word ashur, which one might translate as perceptiveness. Elsewhere, Ibn al-Arabi, and that, that relationship between ash-shu'ur and ash-shu'ur is Ibn al-Arabi's own link. That's how he, just, he comments on it. Elsewhere, Ibn al-Arabi, uh, Ibn al-Arabi clarifies that perceptiveness, ash-shu'ur, can be explained by imagining a locked chest in which you sense movement. You know that there is an animal in the chest, and yet you cannot determine its species. Similarly, if the chest is heavy, you can sense that something is weighing it down without knowing the identity of its contents. Clearly then, poetry comes from a sort of knowing, but one that is intuitive and unclear. What one sees in dreams has form and carries meaning, sometimes incredibly profound meaning. The places, people, and events encountered in a dream can be called, if not knowledge, then certainly a sort of awareness, especially since a dream is 146th part of prophecy, as is stated in a hadith that Ibn al-Arabi will often quote. 
And yet the experiences of dreams require interpretation or a ta'bir. A phrase that Ibn al-Arabi uses to describe the crossing over from form to meaning once meaning has been captured in form. For this reason, in Ibn al-Arabi's astrology, dream interpretation and poetic composition belong to the same celestial sphere, namely the third sphere, the sphere of the divine name, the form giver, al-musawwir, whose acts of creation testify to the capture of meaning in varieties of form. It is, it is the sphere of the prophet Joseph, who unraveled form to get to the meaning of dreams, and the sphere of proper fashioning, a nidham, or harmonious arrangement, as was described in, uh, in our first uh, discussion. The word for harmonious arrangement is closely related to the word anudham, a word that describes the structures and symmetries that define, among other things, verse itself. Remember, verse is ordered speech. Other modes of language, uh, specifically prosaic composition and speech, belong to the second celestial sphere, if we're imagining. The sphere of knowledge. Poetry, on the other hand, is born from imagination and bears its traits so that while other modes of speech unravel meaning, poetry localizes it. Ibn Arabi's focus in his discussions of poetry is love poetry, valued not because of love poetry as a literary genre, but because of the experience of love itself. The experiences of a lover, even a lover who loves in only a natural sense, most resemble that of the knower of God, the Arif. When that lover, using the heightened sense of awareness and self-loss that love dictates, composes poetry, the expression of love comes most proximate to the expression of visionary experience. There are some similarities then between good poetic composition and the experiences of the knower of God, the Arif, Al-Arif. And both the knower and the person of mere natural love can compose meaningful poetry. So it's not the exclusive domain of one or the other, love poetry. That poet might very well be unaware of the spiritual subtleties captured in that poem, and yet, because he or she has a heightened sense of intuition, the poem still rings true. The knower of God, uh, uh, sorry, good poetic interpretation, however, good poetic interpretation is the exclusive domain of the knower, of the Arif. He's the, or she is the reader. The knower of God will read that poem and recognize in it the spiritual subtleties missed by the poem's own author. Thus, whether the poem was written by a saint or a scoundrel, if it shows an awareness of the states of the heart and the pains and pleasures of love, the knower can read it spiritually, interpret it spiritually, and derive pleasure from it spiritually. Ibn al-Arabi himself engages in such commentary by considering the merits of poems based on the standard of spiritual truths. His approach to poetic commentary places less emphasis, in fact, often little at all, on the author and much more emphasis on the correspondence between the poem in question and the universal laws of love. Uh, Universal because these laws apply to true lovers in the natural, spiritual, and divine sense. In other words, they apply to any sort of love experienced sincerely and expressed precisely. 
it is no surprise then that twice in Al-Futuhat Al-Makkiyah, Ibn Arabi comments on a poem by the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid. In the poem, and this is the poem we have here, the Caliph confesses his overwhelming infatuation with three slave girls, Ghadir, Marida, and Haylana. Okay, and here's the poem, I'll, uh, I'll read it. Three delightful maidens possess my bridle and have alighted in every place of my heart. Why, when all of creation coils in fright of me, do I obey them, although they constantly disobey me? This is nothing other than the dominion of passion with which they prevail more mightily than my dominion. Although there are three maidens, Ibn Arabi points out the caliph describes them possessing one bridle, even though three bridles might have made more sense. Still, the language of the poem reflects a truth about love and desire. The lover feels ruled, indeed subjugated, by the force of love itself, not the girls. It is for this reason also that all three girls alight together in the various places of the caliph's heart. And I was glad to hear about these different places, that they have names. As Ibn Arabi comments, the caliph, quote, loves exclusively one meaning actualized for him by these three girls. One meaning actualized by three girls. One meaning that is love itself, not as an emotion, but rather as a cosmological principle. Indeed, when one bears in mind that the first instance of love was God's love for himself that created the cosmos, the entire cosmos, his love to be known, since he was a hidden treasure, the love that conquers the caliph signifies much more than mere biology. Rather, in being attuned to the condition of his heart, the caliph here has happened upon what Ibn Arabi calls a concealed secret, namely, that love is one thing, and in fact, the very cause of creation and all instantiations of love. For this reason, these lines of poetry deserve praise, regardless of whether or not their author was aware of the significance of that which he declared. I hope that that point is clear. The author doesn't matter so much. In contrast, Ibn Arabi does not shy away from pointing out an instance of bad poetry. Once again, the basis for his judgment is the correspondence between poetic expression and spiritual truths, which he determines through close reading. Ibn Arabi, as usual, proves to be a very careful and sensitive reader as he navigates his response to a friend who has inquired concerning a certain set of lines, quote, whether a knower from, the, the, from among the divine lo- lovers had composed them, end quote. In other words, he wants to know whether an arif, a true knower of God, has composed them. Ibn al-Arabi does indeed address this part of his friend's question, but he is more interested in showing that whether the poet was aware of divine mysteries or not, he was not a true lover, and hence not a good poet. The analysis of this poem appears in chapter 198 of Futuhat al-Makiyah, a chapter concerning the breath of the all-merciful. And the poem relates to the theme of breath in that it describes a man under the influence of nostalgia inspired by an oncoming breeze. And you can see it here. I implore you by God, O breeze of the east wind, from where is this goodly smelling breath? 
was it left upon your gown in the mid-morning at a place where Zainab dropped her necklace? Or did I, detect, did I detect your aroma at the meadow of the inviolate lands from when you were drawing her skirt over it? So bring it and receive me kindly with news of her because your familiarity with her today is nearer than mine. Ibn Arabi agrees that the poem is subtle in terms of expression and attractive, but he emphatically states that it is, quote, nothing in terms of meaning, end quote. First, he points out that when the poet um, implores, he is inquiring, seeking knowledge about something unknown. His inquiry, uh, his inquiry, this one, from where... Uh, from where is that? Uh, from where is this goodly smelling breath? Implies that he has encountered a number of such breaths, since he has to ask. The lover should be so preoccupied with his beloved that he does not see anything but her. Indeed, Ibn Arabi offers the mere possibility of an other sharing in the beloved's beauty and perfections should not even enter the lover's mind. The poem, therefore, bears witness against the poet pointing to a lack of intimate knowledge, ma'rifa, if the poet claims to be an intimate knower of God, if his claim is to be an arif, and pointing even to, as Ibn Arabi puts it, the deficiency of his love if he is to be a lover and a truly passionate one. Here, Ibn Arabi does grant that it is possible that the plurality intended, the possibility of multiple fragrant breaths, could be solved if the poet intended multiple manifestations of that beloved, namely, seeing the beloved's face everywhere. The next line, however, cannot be resolved. This one. From, was it, so this, when I say line, I mean baits, it's these two. Was it left upon your gown in the mid-morning at a place where Zainab dropped her necklace? Ibn Arabi comments that this double line, this bait, is among the most evident proofs that he, the poet, is not a lover, and that this utterance is nearer to satirizing the beloved than to praise and extolment. End quote. The problem is that the poet has actually praised not his beloved, but the necklace she has dropped. Because the necklace has made the place fragrant, and the place has passed that perfume onto the wind. What the poet meant to say, however, was that Zainab's own breaths gave to the necklace, the place, and the wind its perfume. For that reason, Ibn Arabi offers his own rectified version of these lines. So here we are to imagine, if you can imagine, um, um, this is the same poet, poem, and here we are to imagine these two lines, or literally this one line, this bait crossed out, and what's in italics is Ibn Arabi's rewording, his reworking of those lines. Was left upon your gown in the mid-morning the goodly fragrance of a place made redolent by Zainab? Its breaths are from the fragrance of her breaths. So her fragrance is, compared with its fragrance, more wondrous. And we'll forgive the sheikh for accomplishing that in two baits instead of one. <laughs> Critique of the poem continues. When the poet says to the wind, or did I detect your aroma at the meadow of the inviolate lands from when you were drawing her skirt over it, once again, according to Ibn Arabi, he attributes the delightful fragrance not to the beloved and her breaths, but rather to the meadow. 
When he says, so bring it and receive me kindly with news of her because your familiarity with her today is nearer than mine, the poet reveals that he speaks falsely as opposed to speaking in utter sincerity. After all, the poem offers no real evidence that the wind has recently been with the beloved. It has been at a place and at a meadow and at one point in time Zainab was there. But the wording of the poem only establishes a sort of probability that the wind passed by Zainab. What, uh, what we do know is that it has passed by these places. So the poet should speak honestly. He should say to the wind that your familiarity with it, that is either place, or with them, with both places, is nearer. He should not say with her. Moreover, Ibn Arabi points out, how do we really know that this delightful smell has anything to do with Zainab. Perhaps the meadow is fragrant because of the presence of flowers or something else. <laughs> is Ibn Arabi being facetious? Not really. Sarcastic, certainly, but he is making an important declaration about poetic expression. Poetry is not simply the compilation of beautiful words, fine metaphors, and rhythmic, rhyming manipulations of language. Beautiful words, when examined deeply, must capture a sort of sublimity of meaning to yield good poetry. Expression is the form, but the form without meaning will lead to something poetically dead. Dead in that it is unable to speak to hearts that are sensitive and aware. Here, instead of speaking on his behalf, I will quote Ibn Arabi's own assessment. So this is from the same discussion here. The beauty of poetry... The beauty of poetry and speech in general lies in the combination of refined expression and unusually exalted meaning, such that both the one contemplating and the one hearing are bewildered, so that each cannot tell which was more beautiful, the expression or the meaning, or if the two um, were equal. Thus, when he looks into one of the two, into either expression or meaning, the other baffles him in its beauty, and if he looks into both of them together, they both bewilder him. Only a person with a coarse heart would, fly, would find pleasure in a poem such as this, the poem on Zainab and the fragrant breeze. For its expression is fine, but its meaning is coarse. If the meaning is ugly to one with a correct view, then beauty of expression will not veil such a one from the ugliness of meaning. A metaphor I can give for this is that of one who loves pictures of the utmost beauty drawn on a decorated wall in a variety of colors complete in terms of formal creation, but without spirit. Meaning is to expression what spirit is to form. Again, meaning is to expression what spirit is to form. In reality, it is its beauty. Another thing I, I find fascinating about this passage is the allusion to the visual arts and clearly Ibn Arabi's preference for poetry. Ibn al-Arabi continues to comment that the height of this combination, the combination of expression and meaning, can be found in the Qur'an. The Qur'an repeats stories in order to teach, and yet the addition or subtraction of even one word would disturb the meaning, and in fact, disturb the form as well. This is because, as Ibn al-Arabi comments, it is an instance of true speech. One might say then, that to Ibn al-Arabi, good love poetry is true love poetry. 
And the standard for such truth is experience. For the lover, it is the experience of love. For the lover who has intimate knowledge of God, that is the knower, the arif, it is also the experience of love, but one coupled with an awareness of the most sublime realities and the full significance of that love. The difference can be imagined perhaps like this. One lover has his heart crushed by a person here on earth. The other lover has his heart crushed by the entire universe and that which is beyond it. Both are heartbroken. And both might speak the same language and make proclamations that parallel one another. And yet, how can the two experiences really be compared? In Ibn Arabi's words, his own heroes are the great lovers and beloveds of Arabic poetry. Figures such as Hind, Bishr, Qais, and Layla, those who loved or were loved with all their being. Love took away, in his description, their sense of reason and annihilated them from themselves, end quote. Because their beloveds, even when absent, were imprinted in their hearts and lived on in their imaginations, afflicting them, afflicting their lovers because they were absent in physical form and yet ever present in uh, the imagination. Imagine then how much worse it must be, Ibn al-Arabi says, for the lover of God. After all, for those experiencing human-to-human love and only human-to-human love, the beloved is seen and heard by the lover. In the case of the lover and knower of God, however, the beloved, that is God, is not just seen and heard, but rather the very faculties of sight and hearing. It is somewhat like the difference between taking a shower and being dropped into the middle of the ocean. That's mine. That's not in my reviews. Sorry. I couldn't find anything. I had a short amount of time. I should have found something from him and I had to make something up. The The experience of love, as I just described it, the mixture of absence and omnipresence, helps us understand the most basic component of much of Sufi poetry, Sufi love poetry, namely shuhud, or witnessing. James Winston Morris, in The Reflective Heart, discusses longing for the divine face, longing for the beatific vision implied in the Quranic verse, verse 115 of chapter 2, wheresoever you turn, there is the face of God, which is not only a central theme in Al-Futuhat al-Makkiyah, but also the, the driving theme in Ibn Arabi's love poetry and poetic commentary. There is an intimate and inseparable connection between God's imagined face and the beautiful human faces celebrated in Arabic and Persian poetry. Let us explore then uh, both the nature of beholding divine beauty and the nature of human-to-human attraction in order to get to the bottom of this important connection, important especially in reading Sufi poetry and Sufi poetic commentaries. We could say the connection between witnessing in its exalted sense and in the very human sense. They're not separated. First, let me describe in four basic observations the nature of shuhud or witnessing, that is, witnessing divine self-disclosures. The first observation is that witnessing differs from a direct vision of God. Direct vision, or a ru'ya, has no intermediary, while witnessing really is a sort of perception. 
A person comes to witnessing with what that person knows and has acquired through the senses, whether the medium of such witnessing is sensory or supersensory. I hope that makes sense. It's not direct because you come at it with what you know and what, have learned, what you've learned through the senses. Direct vision is rare and unfamiliar. It occurs outside of both form and matter, in other words, outside of all that we as humans know and understand. Moses, for example, longs for direct vision in his cry, Lord, show me that I may gaze upon you. We know that it is direct vision and not witnessing that Moses seeks because saints well below the rank of Moses have achieved witnessing. So Moses must be longing for something far more immediate. Witnessing, however, unlike direct vision, is filtered through the viewer's own knowledge of things. It is, in Ibn Arabi's description, bound by signs or bound by signifiers. The second of four observations, uh, observation is that witnessing involves a shahid or a witness. What is a witness? It is, in Ibn Arabi's words, the form of that which is witnessed in the soul of the one witnessing. Okay? I hope I'm not losing you because... To use the same definition, and to use the same, thank you, to use the same word in a definition can sometimes be confusing, but he does it. Okay, so in other words, what is the shahid? The shahid is an imprint on the heart or soul of the receiver left either by the act of witnessing or by a self-disclosure outside of matter, something received but neither familiar nor enjoyed. And I'm sorry to kind of go over this quickly, but I'm trying to get to another point, so I'm just giving you a little bit about witnessing. This imprint bears witness to, the self, to that self-disclosure, and so it is called a witness or a shahid. Okay. The third observation about witnessing is that the person who has this imprint on the heart, the shahid or visionary testament, testimony to the real, enjoys beholding it. In order to behold it, he or she will witness it in various places in various forms. Those forms might exist in the imagination of the soul or they might exist in the world outside the self. You see, you're taking it from inside, this imprint, and now it's being witnessed in something external. Whatever discovery left an imprint on the heart now affects the perceiver's internal and external senses. To behold that visionary testimony in forms is witnessing or shahud. This is what it is. Witnessing then always needs a medium. One who seeks witnessing, because witnessing above all else increases and fortifies love, would want to know which medium serves best for witnessing. One might say that if the goal is love, then the various places of witnessing are roads to that goal. Yet there are many roads, and when one seeks a destination, one always establishes first which is the straightest and hence, which is the, and hence the quickest road. Here we come to the fourth and last observation, a point about which Ibn Arabi, uh, a point which Ibn Arabi makes unequivocally. The human form, above all else, serves as the best medium for witnessing. For one human being to contemplate the beauty of God best, that human must take to the beauty of other human beings. More specifically, from a male perspective, as Ibn Arabi makes clear in his chapter on the Prophet Muhammad in Fusus al-Hikam, the witnessing of the real in women is the greatest, most perfect, 
and most complete instance of witnessing. Okay. It should be mentioned here that Ibn al-Arabi's declaration about women, like similar declarations made by Persian Sufis about witnessing divine beauty in the form of human beloveds, answers those naysayers who argue that passionate or desirous love cannot be ascribed to the human love for God. There were, after all, many theologians and even Sufis who said that while the healthy love described in the Qur'an, al-hub, is indeed possible for God's lovers, desirous love, al-ishq, was inappropriate and impossible since it demanded sight. One must see the beloved before one can experience desirous love, al-ishq, for that beloved. Clearly though, when witnessing the divine in the form of human beings, one can and indeed does see the beloved. One sees God not only in uh, the form of forms of things, but in the most comprehensive of forms, the human form, a form that mirrors the cosmos and a form that mirrors the form of the lover himself. This last point is important too. One loves most what serves as a mirror for oneself. So humans enjoy the highest experience of love when encountering first God, who has breathed into the human the source of the self, and secondarily another human being who can serve as a mirror of contemplation. This is because all of creation has within it the predisposition towards self-admiration. Since it was created out of a divine act of self-admiration, as God is said to have proclaimed in answer to why he created a creation, that he did so because he was a hidden treasure and loved to be known. One can see how this process of witnessing parallels the pains of love as experienced by any human being, whether a knower of God or not. A person meets, for the first time, uh, another beautiful person. And, overwhelmed by her beauty, falls in love. She leaves, but an image of her remains in the heart of the lover. He carries it everywhere and indeed sees her everywhere. While he enjoys remembering her, thinking about her always, the memory also torments him. After all, he can only remember he cannot actually have. She is both omnipresent and absent. She is both everywhere and nowhere. His only consolation is crying out loud, and from those cries comes the mode of perceptive expression we call love poetry. For this reason, in this poem, in the following poem from Tajman al-Ashwaq, Ibn al-Arabi describes the pains of yearning common to lovers, lovers of humans, lovers of God, and those, like Ibn al-Arabi himself, who are lovers of both. Or rather, as he himself says, the combination of the two. Okay. Peace be upon Salma, and whoever settles in that private pasture. And it is the duty of one like me, so tender-hearted, to give greetings. And what would she lose if she were to return these salutations to us, but one cannot pass judgment against beautiful idols? They set off when the tenebrousness of night let down its curtains. And I said to her, uncontrollably in love, stranded, enslaved by love, yearning surrounding him, ready to unleash violently upon him are those desires who project arrows no matter where he turns. She smiled, revealing her teeth. A flash of lightning struck. I do not know which of the two 
broke the sheer night darkness. She said, doesn't it suffice him concerning me that with his heart he witnesses me in every single moment? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? And of course, the answer is, no, it does not. In fact, witnessing the beloved always and everywhere is far from a consolation for the afflicted lover. Rather, it is this witnessing and not having that sums up his agony. In fact, the beloved statement is not meant to console. It is meant to mock, to trifle with the lover and to underscore the pleasure she takes in his pains. Rather than sympathize with his cries, she smiles. Rather than offer an end to his torture, she tells him that he can enjoy it always and everywhere. The beloved's ironic response is more than mere coyness. It is a sadistic indifference to his suffering. Moreover, it is not even the actual beloved saying this. It is the beloved as lodged in the lover's memory. She is that unattainable. As Ibn Arabi mentions, the lover in this state of suffering combines opposites, which is one of the qualities of love. The the beloved loves separation, the lover loves union. But the lover is also supposed to love that which the beloved loves. So does the lover then also love separation? It's like a riddle. That would be impossible and contrary to the dictates of love, as Ibn Arabi says. Rather, the lover must love, quote, the beloved's love of separation, not separation itself, and also love of union. And also love union. This is not the state of some temporary and fleeting relationship. It is instead the nature of love. Since the lover and the beloved, no matter how much the same, and even if the beloved is lodged in the lover's own memory, must be separated by their opposing roles. Thus, when Moses cries out, Lord, show me that I may gaze upon you, the answer comes back, you will not see me. And yet the witnessing described in this poem, the awareness of the beloved imprinted in the heart and seen everywhere through the imagination, does indeed give to the viewer something he would not otherwise have. As Ibn Arabi describes it in his commentary on this poem, it is a witnessing of the beloved, quote, in his, the lover's, own essence, through his essence, at every moment, end quote. Without such witnessing, love and esoteric knowledge lose their source of nourishment. Without such witnessing, the knower would not be a knower. Poetry can capture the contradictions of love because it is not bound by the laws of reason. Remember that poetry originates in the imagination and answers to the imagination. Poetry aims to do that which the imagination does, namely capture meaning in forms. That which appears in the imagination is both sensory and supersensory. It conveys meaning, or we might say spiritual realities, but does so using everything one has acquired from the senses. An abstract concept, such as knowledge, cannot appear as knowledge. How can one see something like knowledge, something that has no form? Rather, in the imagination, knowledge might appear as milk, to give an example. The importance placed on both imagination and witnessing allows Ibn Arabi to embrace the sensory and even the sensual in ways foreign to or even rejected by many among ascetics and those we call mystics. We know that Ibn Arabi himself 
proclaims that he came to the love of women only after struggling with it. Upon originally entering the path, Ibn al-Arabi detested women and union with them, according to his own account, for a period of 18 years. The insight given to him in this matter reflects his newer alignment with the spiritual perfection of Muhammad. For both the Prophet Muhammad and Ibn al-Arabi, it is not that they loved women, but that through divine agency and their own inherent perfections, women were made beloved of them. You see the difference. In declaring this, Ibn al-Arabi refers to the hadith of, the, of Muhammad, three things have been made beloved of me from this world of yours, women, perfume, and the delight of my eye has been placed in the, in the prescribed prayer. It is with this point that I wish to conclude. The celebration of both love poetry and the human form that one finds in Ibn al-Arabi's corpus should not be understood in vague terms. The centrality of erotic poetry and the human form in Ibn al-Arabi's thought should not be confused or conflated with other instances of erotic poetry in a religious or spiritual context. Ibn al-Arabi's reading is especially unlike many uh, metaphorical uses of erotic poetry to describe a spiritual in, uh, experience distinct or distant from the bodily. What I mean by this is that Sufi love poetry and Sufi commentaries on such poetry should be read in their own very real conceptual and historical context. It is not true that all mystics necessarily mean the same thing when they use erotic poetry as part of a spiritual regimen. In the case of Ibn al-Arabi, his fascination with erotic poetry blossomed in a certain context. A context in which many Persian-speaking Sufis with whom he was acquainted, such as Ohad al-Din Kermani, proclaimed their allegiance to a school of passionate love. In Persian, mazhab ishq Erotic poetry, for many adherents to the school of passionate love, occurred in settings where actual human beloveds, often young men, whose beards had not yet sprouted, sat before these saints. The viewers would recite poetry, weep, and witness unlimited divine beauty in the form of an actual human face. While there is some evidence that Ibn al-Arabi opposed this practice, I have argued that there is better evidence that Ibn al-Arabi sympathized with it. But Ibn al-Arabi's stance on this one practice of gazing at beautiful faces matters little. He certainly and unambiguously sympathized with the principles of the school of passionate love, namely the witnessing of divine beauty in human form. Ibn al-Arabi's famous reference to his belonging to a religion of love, Deen al-Hub, mirrors to some degree the Persian title, School of Passionate Love. I'm not saying they're the same, but I think the parallel cannot be ignored. And one cannot, cannot ignore the fact that those influenced by Ibn al-Arabi, especially the students of his foremost student, began a trend of commenting on erotic poetry, often that of, of the Egyptian Sufi Ibn al-Farid, and interpreting that poetry in ways that intertwined ineffable, ineffable divine appearances and real human beauty. Figures such as Fakhruddin Iraqi, Sa'id and Sa'id al-Din Farghani did not maintain a definition of erotic poetry that, that veered from that of their great sheikh, Ibn al-Arabi. They instead continued a way of thinking about beauty that went far, far back into the memory of Sufism and Islam itself back beyond the great Ahmad Ghazali, back to the source texts themselves. Poetry, and by this I mean love poetry as its highest expression, 
had the ability to capture contradictories, to be material in form and immaterial in meaning, and as such came closest in terms of art forms and modes of expression to another entity that captures contradictions and is both material in form and superbly immaterial in meaning, namely the human being. The combination of beautiful and balanced form with exalted and sublime meaning translates to this, that composing and enjoying poetry, especially love poetry, captures the very paradigm of being human. The story of the creation of Adam, the story of the Prophet Muhammad's nightly descent, or ascent, sorry, nightly ascent, and the revelation of divine speech in human tongue known as the Qur'an, all point to the marriage between absolute meaning and material form made made necessary only by love, the love of the real to be known. Thank you.